0: Our scripture passage this morning is found in Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor, and any woman who lives in her house, for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians.
1: Friends, I hope you'll keep your Bibles open with me there to Exodus chapter 3. It's quite a reading, uh, it's quite a chapter. Last night, um, I was looking at the passage, and um, I had asked Tony if he would read, what was it, somewhere around uh, 13 through the end of the chapter or so, and about 8 o'clock last night, I said, man, we got we to read the whole thing, <laughs> and uh, he read the whole thing, and I hope that um, I share that with you today because it's important for you to know uh, we need to give attention. Uh, there's, there's no better story to give attention to. There's no greater reality that could uh, impact our minds, that should change the way that we think, that we ought seek for understanding, and that we ought then, by faith, build our lives on. How are we going to build our lives on by faith? Something that we're ignorant of. We have very little in this world that's calling us to, to even know this story. Uh, This morning, we are continuing our sermon series entitled History of Redemption. It is associated with a Bible reading plan at BibleTogether.com. And I bring that up to you because as we continue this series, I know that some of you began just a few weeks ago with the Bible reading plan. And there's a little checkup real quick, right? (laughs) I I get it. I get it. There's lots of things that happen on any day, in any moment, and certainly any multitude of weeks. Uh, it's not too late to hop back in. Are you still going? Are you still giving attention? And, and if you're a few days, maybe even a week or two behind, just hop in right away. Visit BibleTogether.com this week and let's read, give our attention. Let's listen with the dwell app to the story that, that is the story, the, the, very, the very means by which God has told us who he is. He's revealed Himself. So I just encourage you, let's keep going. Let's come to know the story together. Read some of the reflections that are there, uh, if they are helpful to you. Last week, uh, in the story as we're making our way through the Scriptures, we made our way to Genesis 45, and we got to know the story, uh, of the, the sort of climactic moment in the story of Joseph, the story that began with his at, the attempted murder by his brothers, right? And then his suffering in the land of Egypt that then sort of culminated in God's ordaining sovereign work to bring Joseph to great power in Egypt that would ultimately lead to the rescue of Joseph's family. His father and his brothers would would come to Egypt and find provision there. Really, it's a story of God's providence. Now, this is important I love having words that have just meaning to them. Like they're they're more than just a definition. There's there's whole stories behind words, like the word providence. I hope that when you hear the word providence, you think the the idea, the concrete reality of provision. And we talk about providence. We're not just talking about sovereignty. We've already got a word for that: sovereignty. When we're talking about providence, we're talking about the exercise of God's sovereign power for provision. And so he made provision. His providence was exercised for Joseph and his family. Our story today, at the beginning of Exodus, takes place generations later. Back at the beginning of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, you're just a couple pages over, you could turn there if you like, Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. As well as verse 13, say this, Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. So, verse 13, So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. So we've gone from God's providence, God's provision of a place for the people to be rescued in the midst of a famine in the the whole region, to that same people being enslaved. You're reading it, Bible Together. This week takes us all the way from this moment of slavery in Exodus chapter 1 all the way through the crossing of the Red Sea at the sort of climactic moment of the rescue, a moment that we will point back to for the rest of the story as an image that points to the final rescue, the great crossing that Jesus himself would perform for us. And so we begin this morning. I'm going to let you sit in attention. And really, it's the tension that that holds together chapter 3 this morning, and it's the, the tension that holds together the whole story. The first bit of tension is this. God is holy. God is holy. And holiness necessarily separates. Holiness is a divider. One is either holy or One is not holy. Like the definition of holy, the fact that holy has a definition is a dividing reality. Righteousness has no part with wickedness. God is holy. You can already feel the tension, can't you? You know where we're going with this. We feel this tension every week. There's a moment why we have a prayer of confession every single week because we need to remember the tension that is at the heart of this story that calls for our attention. The second reality, God, the Holy One, draws near to rescue his people. Now, you might have thought that I was going to say this. You are not holy. Well, you would have been spot on. I mean, that's what we remember in prayer of confession every single week. We have this tension. God is holy, we are not. And so we open up the word and we say, Is there any good news for a people like us in this situation where God is holy and we are not? And we discover God and his gospel, right? But that's not the only tension. There is a tension that God is holy, and yet the God who is holy has drawn near to a people like you and me. Moses, in our passage here, and the people who were with him. There is a tension in our passage this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess together again, you are holy. And it's not enough to confess this. We join with the angels. You are holy, holy, holy holy. There is no, no conception of holy that is above you. You are that. And you, holy one, have drawn near to us, and that causes us to ask some questions. Lord, I pray that if there is one here who is not asking a question, that seems mundane, trivial, irrelevant, To where they are in their lives, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would do exactly what Mark was speaking of. That you would cause this great tension. Our God is holy and yet draws near. Would create a question in us. Pray that your word would be that resolution. Speak to us, Lord. We pray, draw near to us the way that you have in your word today and by your spirit. Confirm it to our hearts with faith. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We have a, a question before us that I want to present. I'm going to present it a number of times. It flows out of the tension. We've got a burning bush, right? Let's just look at our, the, the, the issues of our scenario. We have a, a burning bush, which isn't really true because we actually have a not burning bush, all right? It's kind of the point. I mean, big deal, burning bush. Must have caught fire somehow, you know? No, but it's a, it's a burning bush that's not burning. So we have a not burning bush, and a God named I am who I am, and we have a promise of rescue. I wonder, in all this talk about burning bushes and God's who I am, I, who I am, if it is possible that perhaps we've gotten so familiar with a story like this that we've forgotten to ask some of the most pressing questions. This God is holy and he is awesome. It would seem to me, that he has no business here in Exodus chapter 3. What's he doing? I mean, he's, he's holy and righteous and glorious. I could see why there would be fire, but I can't see why that holy, righteous one would be speaking out of a fire to a, a Moses. What's he doing here? Who is this God who stoops to save? I think that's the question that's before us this morning. And I'm going to try to answer it in the three big sections that are in our passage. Come on, give me a break here. We're preaching a chapter, all right? So we're gonna, I'm going to do some work. I'm going to ask you to do some work with me. And this morning, we're going to see three things about this God who stoops to save. The first, we've already seen it, he's holy. You've heard the phrase, perhaps, holier than thou, all right? And he thinks he's holier than thou. He, he thinks he's really something. A person who is holier than thou uses his or her good deeds, his or her right words, smug attitude to elevate and to separate. Now, what's interesting is that there is no greater division than that between that which is holy and that which is not holy. So one who is holier than thou is separate and distinct and greater, right? But what is True is God is holier than thou. It's true. He is holier than you. Moses knew it. How did he respond to the holiness of God? In our our passage today, it says he covered his face. He covered his face. He knew it. The story, Moses peeks into the bushes and he finds God. Let's see how this story plays out. Verse 1, Moses actually isn't peeking into any bushes. He isn't looking for God. It says, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. That's what he was doing in the fields that day. Moses isn't out there looking for God. He's just a shepherd. And this, this runs counter to his own upbringing in Pharaoh's household. Sheep were unclean to the Egyptians. Moses was raised in the household of Pharaoh, and now he's out tending to the flocks of the sheep. Shepherds were considered outcasts, and that's what Moses is. He's an outcast from Egypt. We've got a lowly shepherd who will become the deliverer of Israel. Hmm. It's not the last time in Scripture we're going to see God announcing good news to a shepherd in a field. Now, this time it doesn't seem like it's by night, but... He is caught off guard by the sight, isn't he? And it says in verse 1 that this takes place at Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. Later we'll be back to the same mountain where it's called Mount Sinai, same mountain, where Moses again meets God. And the people are caught by the sight. And God gives Moses and the people his law. And then we have in the passage, a burning bush, a burning bush showing up, angel appeared to him in a flame, a fire out of the midst of the bush, he looked, and behold, the bush was burning yet it was not consumed. all right Moses isn 't looking for God, but God is going to looking for Moses, perhaps it should be called the fiery bush that didn 't burn. This is a natural event taking place in a very unnatural supernatural way. Bushes burn. Like, that's not too terribly odd. It's neat to watch. Now, some of the guys in the room are like, yeah, Christmas trees, man, somewhere around New Year's Day. It's not particularly unnatural. You can do that to a Bush, but there is something that's both normal and mysterious about this particular side. It catches Moses' attention. He realizes there's something truly special happening in this particular flame. We'll see this pattern in coming weeks. The miracles of God are both very natural. They happen with natural stuff. And and yet they happen in a distinctly supernatural way. There are they're natural enough that some would try to explain them by natural causes because they happen with natural stuff. But what's happening with that natural stuff is amazing, is supernatural, do not have a natural cause. They are miraculous. One can explain a burning bush. There are countless ways it could have caught fire, but one can't explain a burning bush that isn't consumed. You see, the pattern of God's presence is in the natural world. But when he arrives in the natural world, miraculous things happen. He works within the context of the natural, but it can only be explained in a supernatural way. Verse 3 says, Moses turned aside, and he was curious. He sees the flame, and he sees the bush, and he sees that the bush isn't being consumed by the flame. The bush is not burned and so what he finds there is he sees the activity and the presence of God. God is holy. He is other. We have a natural world, and God is not of that natural world. His ways and his powers are not like that of creation. We, we don't expect him. We don't anticipate him. We, we don't predict him, and we can't explain him because he's not what we are. And so this is unexpected, unpredictable. God calls Moses out of a bush that is burning and is not consumed. That's important because what we see is this is God's initiative. Moses didn't do it. God did. God's doing it. It's by his initiative, and God catches Moses' attention, and God calls him. Verse 5, look at it with me. Then he said, don't come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. Well, what's holy about this ground? Again, it's sort of like the bush thing. There's such a thing as, as, as bushes in the wilderness. There's such a thing as uh, bushes that are on fire. Well, there's such a thing as ground in the wilderness too. And what's holy about ground? Let me suggest to you nothing. It's dirt. There's nothing holy about the dirt there. The holy ground is holy not because it's special dirt but because God is working there. And when you have God's work and God's presence, you have that which is holy. Friends, that lock that in for a second. Think on that this week. It's going it changes things that I'm not not going to talk about at all this morning. But it changes everything. Where Where God is and when he works, that's a holy thing. And that's what makes anything else perhaps almost kind of close to worthy of the word holy. And what's he say in verse six? And he said, I am the God. I am the God of your father. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses hid his face. This is an essential turning point in the conversation. We're going along, sort of have a setup here. But when God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he isn't saying, I'm your daddy's God. No, he's not just drawing attention to, to some special ancestral God of a place that he has a generational memory of God is making it clear that he remembers the covenant that he made way back in Genesis 12. And I would encourage you, write that down in your Bible, in the margin here, so you can connect the dots. That's why we're flying through the history of redemption in the Bible reading plan, so we can connect Genesis 12 with Exodus 3. When God says, I'm the God of your fathers, he's saying, I'm that covenant God. Do you remember? I made a promise, and I'm here to fulfill it. Moses, once he realizes who this is, this is the covenant God. This is the one who spoke to Abraham, and he gave a promise of a redemption that stretches to the ends of the earth. After realizing that this is the great God of covenant promise, he hides his face. Now let us remember why Moses hides his face. God is holy. There's no greater divider than that which, between that which is holy and that which is not holy. Moses is right to be afraid to look at God. The first thing that our first paragraph here in Exodus 3 tells us, is God is holy. Remember the question, who is this God? Who is this God who stoops to save? He is the holy God. And if we keep going into the next paragraph, what we see is he is the holy God and he is the near God. And this is the paradox. This is the tension in our passage. We've seen God's holiness. His holiness is, is completely other. His very presence transforms the ordinary, a bush, even a burning bush, the natural, the mere ground at the foot of a mountain and his work and his presence makes that which is ordinary holy. So what does God, the Holy One, have to do with Moses? And even more, what does he have to do with an oppressed people in some land called Egypt under a Pharaoh? Well, let's consider the relationship between holiness and sinners. Let's first remember that the Israelites' biggest problem isn't their slavery to Pharaoh. And this is something that comes up repeatedly throughout the story in the coming chapters for the remainder of Exodus. The biggest problem isn't their slavery to Pharaoh. Their biggest problem is their slavery to sin. This is the nature of God's rescue that's taking place In Egypt, their first identity is not that of slaves, but that of rebels, and rebels not against Pharaoh. They rebelled, they and all who descend from Adam are rebels, not against Pharaoh, but against God, the Holy One, the Israelites, the descendants of Jacob from whom God named all of Israel are also descendants of Adam, and you are too. I don't know what you think your problem is. I know what the Israelites thought their problem was. I know what Moses thought his problem was. But your problem is you're a sinner. You're descended from Adam, and you prove it daily. You just like him, rebelling against God. I prove it. You prove it. Sinners have no right to stand in the presence of a holy God. And so God puts out his hand via his voice, and he says, stop, stay right there. The ground you're standing on, this is holy ground. And you're a sinner, and the people in slavery in Egypt are sinners, and I'm here to do something about that. He's portrayed in the midst of a fire, a bush, a bush that is not consumed. It's a miraculous manifestation of God's presence. When when have we ever seen a fire that does not consume? But you know what's interesting is in the scriptures elsewhere, God's fire is described very differently. And I think we would have seen that fire act very differently if Moses would have come any closer. There's another place that fire is described in Hebrews chapter 12. Again, a good thing to put in the margin. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29, it says, let us offer to God acceptable worship. Like don't come any closer to the holy God is acceptable worship in this moment. With reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. A consuming fire. Why worship God with reverence and awe? When, why, when God says, don't come any closer, do you stop? Why do you worship Him with reverence and awe? Because you are standing before the God whose fire consumes. It lays waste it leaves nothing behind. Everything that is not holy like he is holy is consumed. God is holy. And you can feel the tension building in light of the testimony of Scripture about who God is. What in the world is going on that God is drawing near? It is true that God, that we cannot draw near to God as sinners. But it's not the whole story to say that God cannot draw near to sinners himself. In fact, the testimony of scriptures is he will. And it's called judgment. God's not afraid of sinners. Sinners don't have like some force field that God can't cross over. God comes to sinners in perfect, all-consuming judgment. We should expect this. That's right. That's what a good God does with rebels in his kingdom. It's terrifying because I happen to be one of those rebels. But that's a good God who has ordered the universe to consume rebels. And yet, he's standing here talking to Moses. And that's the real tension. You know you're a rebel and a sinner against God's holiness and his authority. And Moses knows it, and he covers his face. And yet he's standing here, wondering, why why am I not ash yet? Why is that bush not ash yet? And he covers his face. And you and I worship God with reverence and awe. What does God say? God who does not consume the bush, and he doesn't consume Moses either. What does he say? Look what God says, before whom Moses stands. We're about to find out what a holy God has to do with sinners and slaves. Verse 3, and God said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people. He's seen their suffering, who are in Egypt and heard my cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come to deliver them. I've surely seen he says we are just told this at the end of, of chapter 2 but that that was the narrator Moses describing what he recollects about the whole of this story that God sees but now we have in verse, in chapter 3 God's explicit words saying I have seen I know your sufferings he says you you remember how Moses got to this point how how he how he went to how he went to the the son of Pharaoh's daughter, how he became the son of Pharaoh's daughter, And, and that out of that place, he then sees his fellow Israelites being afflicted, and he reaches out to try to rescue his brothers who was enslaved, even though he was living in the palace, and he reaches out to try to rescue them, and he fails. He fails miserably because, you see, Moses might have been able to lead a rebellion. And the best case scenario is he would have been successful. He would have gotten all the Israelites, all of his brothers who were enslaved, out of Egypt. But if you remember what went wrong in the story, where Moses, back many years before, kills an Egyptian man to rescue his fellows, his fellows, the very next day he sees them bickering. He sees them arguing. You see, Moses could get the Israelites out of Egypt and out of slavery, but he couldn't get them out of sin. And that's what God is doing here. Verse 8 says, I've come down to bring them out and to. Moses' goal was that he would bring them out of Egypt and out of their slavery, but God's goal is he would bring them to worship. And that's a whole different thing. Now we're getting to the heart of the matter. God made a covenant promise to the ancestors of Moses and the Israelites. In, in Genesis 46, 3 and 4, God said this to Jacob. Do not be afraid, Jacob. After Joseph says, hey, come on down. Come on down. There's food down here to rescue from the famine. God's made provision because he is providential here. He's working. In Genesis 46, he says, do not, God says, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. God promised to go down with Israel. And here he is with the people. Verses 10 and 11, I will send you to Pharaoh, and the question of Moses, who am I? God says, I'll send you to Pharaoh. And Moses says, big deal. (laughs) Who am I that you're sending to Moses or to, to, to Pharaoh in Egypt? God's calling Moses to finish in God's power, the rescue that Moses failed to achieve in his power when he struck down the Egyptians and his word to Moses is, I mean, you kind of have a point. <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> I am with you, he says. I am with you. This is the heart of God's promise over and over and over again to his people. God is near. In fact, it's the heart of salvation. In salvation, God isn't just forgiving sin. Like, I see your sin. I need you, so you need some help. I've got power to forgive sin. He's removing the barrier between his holiness and his people. God isn't just forgiving sin, waving a a magic cosmic wand. He's removing a barrier of fellowship. God remains holy, and God draws near. It's the heart of salvation. God is reconciling the irreconcilable. God is Holy, and God has come near. I'm reminded of what Sam said last week. It's such a, a powerful implication of that story with, with Joseph. When, when Joseph tells his brothers, as they're afraid. And Joseph has power. And they're afraid to come near and receive the, the, prov- the provision that Joseph had made for him. And he says, and he calls his brothers, come near. And friends, that is an image for us of what God is doing. He who has come near also calls his people. Come near. God is holier than thou. He is the very definition of what holy is. And and this God who is holy has drawn near. He's leveraged his perfection, his sufficiency of all of his holiness. And he's leveraged all of that perfection in loving kindness to bring those who are far off near. There's a clear distinction between the holy and the unholy, but by grace, through faith, the sinner is clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This is where we're going, isn't it? The sinner is clothed with the righteousness of Christ and made holy, fit for the presence of God. God has said, without holiness, none shall see God, but God has come near to clothe with holiness. These are the two things in answer to the question, who is this God? Well, God is holy, and God is near. The last thing, this last paragraph, it's kind of a long one, but we'll just look at the beginning portion of it. This last paragraph tells us something else. It might sound like an incomplete sentence. God is holy, God is near, and he is. He is. You remember the tension. This God who's holy and awesome, it would seem that he has no business here. Who who is this God who stoops to save? And you can hear the question part of the question. Who is? Who is? And the answer part of the answer to the question is God is. Verse 13. Here's how Moses asks the question. Then, Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Moses is essentially saying, you're sending an 80-year-old man back to Pharaoh's court, all right? who served as a shepherd this whole time, who fled under the sentence of death, to tell them that they're to let the enslaved people, that they are systematically seeking to exterminate. And you want me to go back and and tell them, by the way, let them go. Let them go and worship God, Pharaoh who thinks he's a God. (laughs) How in the world are the Israelites going to believe that somehow I can lead them out of the power and the oppression of Pharaoh who thinks he's God The most powerful ruler in the world. How am I going to convince them? I I can't do it, Moses is saying. They're they're going to have to know you in order to know that you sent me. They need to know who you are in order to believe your promise of rescue. And God agrees. Good Good job, Moses. You're right. They do need to know me. You don't stand a chance against Pharaoh, you're right. You don't go in your own name. You don't go in your own power, and you don't go by your own authority. God answers the question of who it is who rescues, and the answer to the question, who is it that rescues, is I am, who I am. Now, I am who I am is a proper name. It's not just a sentence answer to a question. It is a proper name, Yahweh. Yahweh is related to the Hebrew verb, which means to be, or I am, in verse 15. Look at it with me. And God said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the Lord. Now, if you look in your Bibles, more than likely, that word Lord is all caps. That doesn't happen very often. You don't write write in all caps in the Bible, and it's not just for emphasis. It's signaling something to us that the translator's do this. It's telling us that the word that is used there for the word Lord is actually the word, the proper name, the I am name of Yahweh God. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, sent you. And this will have the same effect of bringing to mind God's covenant promise to the people when he says it. It will also have the same effect of of moving the Israelites to worship the holy God. In fact, just a chapter later, when Moses does what God said, and he goes to the Israelites and he says, Yahweh, Yahweh sent me. The I am, Exodus 4.31, and the people believed. They believed. Friends, that's a miracle. That's like a bush not burning. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that he had seen their affliction, They bowed their heads and worshipped. They believed and they worshipped the Lord. The Israelites took the name of God very seriously and they ought to have. They they wouldn't say it and they wouldn't read it. And in order to reverence it and hold the name of the Lord with awe to avoid taking it in vain, the English Bibles, they they pick up this tradition and the word Lord in your Bibles, all caps, is, is that that precious name, that, that holy name, that name that is the revealed proper name that God gives. When they came upon the word Yahweh, the Israelites would read the word Adonai. So they're reading along, they see it there, and they read the word Adonai, which means Lord. We'll look at why this is important in a few moments in the New Testament. But just note that when we read the name LORD, all caps, it isn't a title. It's not referring to master. It's actually a holy and reverent way of speaking the name of God, so holy and so reverent that it's not spoken. It isn't LORD somebody. It's somebody is LORD. What does the name mean? Uh, One commentator writes, Our starting point in understanding the meaning of the name is to understand it not as an independent datum or word concerning the nature of God, but as an answer to a question. Well, what is that question that Moses asks when God tells him, I am who I am? Moses says, who is it that's going to save the people? Who should I say sent me to rescue God answers in two ways. First, by telling Moses his name, and then by telling Moses his purpose. Verse 17, I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land, a land where they would worship him. When God says that he is who he is, in this context, it's a declaration of rescue. It's not first an ontological statement. It's not a statement first about that states his being, though it is no less true of his reality. God's making a statement not only about who he is, he's also making a statement about what he does. Let's remember, God's presence was at the burning bush, and God's presence was doing something at the burning bush. So when God says, I am who I am, he's not just telling me, this is who I am, like some sort of Eastern mystical energy that just is. No, he's personal and active and he's doing something. And in this context, it's very clear what he's doing. And it's the whole theme of the story he's redeeming. He's saving, he's saving. God is the one who rescues. God is savior. He is Redeemer, the one who is who He is and does what He does, sent you to redeem the people. I am rescuer, and I will rescue. He is essentially saying, he's just basically saying, I will be with you. I will bring you out to serve me. I will rescue you. I will save you. You ask, who sent you? I did. I did. The one who is who he is sent you. The one who does what he does sent you. And I've said what I am and I've said what I do. I'm your rescuer. That's what God, who is the I am, is. I am who I am and I do what I do. I'm holy and near and I rescue and bring you to myself. Let's consider our question again. This God is holy and he's awesome and it would seem he has no business here who is this God who stoops to save? He's holy. He's near, and he is who he is. And who did he say he is? Rescuer. He is the God who saves. Who is he? Jesus. I mean, it's no rocket science. I'm not some special pastor that I, that I really did the exegesis on this passage to come up with this one. Who is he? Who is the I am? There's another name that brings the meaning of God's name into perfect clarity for us. What if someone were to decide to name a little Hebrew baby, the Lord saves? What if somebody did that? What if someone named someone Yahweh the rescuer? Well, what you would do is you would take Yah. And then you would take Shua, which means saves. And you'd smash them together and you'd say the word Yeshua. And if you were born to Hebrew parents, but you were born in a time where in Greek was the dominant language, you would say Yesu or Jesus. Friends, Jesus is. He is, the name that was given to him by the angel. Jesus is Yahweh who saves. I remember I said that, remember I said that the, the word Lord in your Bible is the Hebrew word that for the name of God, Yahweh. And when you read the title Lord, you should think the very name of God, not just a title like master. You should think this is who he is. This is how he has chosen to reveal himself. And when you read this, if you go to Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, at the end of this incredible passage at the beginning of Philippians 2. In 9 and 10, it says this. Therefore, and this is now in Greek. We're not in Hebrew anymore, so we don't have these capital letters, Lord. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Well, we all know what that name is. We've known that name every since he gave it to Moses. Not to Moses, but revealed it to Moses. So that at the name of Jesus, every name should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Lord to the glory of God. Isaiah 45 speaks of the same event, but he has every knee bowing to Yahweh. You see, Jesus isn't merely Lord. He isn't the one who has the right to tell you what to do. He's Lord who is. And he has leveraged by his steadfast love and mercy all that he is in his holiness to draw near. Isn't that what Isn't that how we know Jesus? He was the one that was announced not only to a shepherd in Midian, but to the shepherds in his coming when he drew near. He isn't merely Lord. He is the Lord. He's the sovereign king. He's the Lord God. He's Yahweh who saves. He is who he is, and he does what he does, and he did it. Right? Moses. Here's news of what God will do, and he waits. We hear what he's done. We say, it's true. Yahweh. That's who he is. And we sing Jesus in our songs, and then it means something. It means Yahweh saves. He did it. He did it. We're rescued. Let me ask the question one more time. This God is holy, and he's awesome, and it would seem he has no business here. Who is this God who stoops to save in Exodus chapter 3? He is Jesus. Friends, it's so important. I'm not saying Jesus, when he came, took the name Yahweh. I'm saying that the God of the Old Testament I'm not not saying that the God of the Old Testament, you know, the Yahweh God, let this dude who came later by his prophecy, whose name was Jesus, go by his name. The truth of the Scripture is that Yahweh, this God, who is who he is and who was what he was and will be what he will be, he's always been Jesus. He is the rescuer of his people. He always has been and he always Will be. This is his name forever, and thus he is to be remembered throughout all the generations. Jesus, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, the image of the invisible God, fully revealed not through a bush, but in the flesh before us, and in salvation, revealing grace to us, and reigning in his heavenly kingdom where we'll see him in all of his glory face to face. That Jesus, the perfect meeting of God's holiness and God's nearness, Emmanuel, Jesus. It's through the person and work of Jesus that God has revealed his true holiness, that his true holiness, the nature of the steadfast love and the mercy of our God is to draw near to sinners, to redeem, and to transform. Does that mean anything at all to you, sinner? Sinner. All of a sudden, I hate my sin. I don't like to be called sinner. I mean, just try it. See how I feel. See how you feel. You don't like it. But all of a sudden, I'm not afraid anymore. Because I just heard news of Yahweh who draws near to sinners. This is who he is and what he does. Friends, there are two implications for it. There's a thousand implications. It's like the implications. Two things I want to send you with. You're not holy, but your God is holy. And your God is near. And he moves towards sinners to rescue. The most awkward time in our service for 11 years now is the prayer of confession. It's just silence, (laughs) and you're just sitting there with the last word being said about you is, by the way, talk to the holy God about how you're a sinner. You can. You can. Over and over again. With a contrite heart and a broken spirit before our God, I'm a sinner. And I I need a God like Yahweh God. I need a God like Jesus. Will you draw near the way you said you would draw near? Can I stand in the reality of your redemption? Jesus moves toward the sinner to rescue. The second thing, and it might come out of the blue, but let me suggest to you, as an ambassador of our Redeemer, you have received the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ who have seen his cross and his sacrifice in your place. You are an ambassador of the Redeemer. You are one who now bears his name. Do we also not move toward the lost and the broken? He's just screaming for us to be called like Moses is called and to go like Moses went. And you're like, "Uh, (laughs) who am I? Same answer. Well, who shall I say sent me? Jesus. He who saves sent you. Go with good news. You're not holier than the one that you go to. There's only one who's great in his own glory. But like Moses, in the name of the one who sent us, we go with news, good news, Gospel news, Jesus saves sinner. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that your word would go out like news to souls right now. Lord, that the the greatness of our God, a reverence in all, a reality of your holiness would infect the way that we think and interact with what becomes holy things like each other as the saints, the holy ones, gather. We are the place where you have drawn near and where you work. What a powerful reality that Christ is the head of the church and we are his body. And Lord, I pray that you would save if there is one who is here who is still lost in sin. Save, Lord. I pray that you would draw draw near and you would bring about contrition of sin. A call, will you save, Lord? And we know your answer, you've already done it. In Christ on the cross, would you save? And Lord, I pray that you would send us, send us well. Lord, that we would, we would tremble not to go. It would be a fearful thing to remain on that ground and not go quickly. Lord, I pray that you would do something in us this week that we can't not go in the name of Jesus. And Lord, every one of our prayers ends this way. There is a name by which we can speak to the Holy One. There is a name by which we, we think that anything that we've called out to you for might, might be heard. There's a name of the One who is steadfast in love and mercy. And so it is in that name that we pray Lord Jesus, amen.